Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all you wonderful, wonderful mothers. We, we love you so much. You're just the best there is, and we're so thankful for you. We have had a busy couple of weeks, or I have. I, it's been uh, kind of crazy. Just last weekend, we had a, an amazing uh, city group leaders retreat over at Crosshairs Retreat Center. 38 different leaders were there, represented really well. Uh, and so we're excited about what God wants to do in our city groups and in our people and our leaders in you as, as a church. It was a great, great weekend. And, uh, and then right after our city group leaders retreat, I got on the road and went to uh, Franklin, Tennessee to welcome uh, Scott Williams. You remember Scott rode 444 miles and he did it, rode in on Wednesday afternoon about three o'clock and I was there with a filmmaker and we were trying to document everything and we had the drone flying over him while he's riding and, and all of this cool stuff. Anyway, you'll see that soon enough, but we are so proud of Scott and Ellie and what they've done. I hope at some point this morning they'll be able to join us and we can uh, see them and give them another round of applause because God is doing so much through Scott and Ellie. I'm just so proud of them, proud that they're a part of our family. Well, we're in a series called Acts, the Story of the Church. Uh, we've been there for a little while. We're going to finish up that series this summer. Last, uh, two weeks ago, we were in chapter 23. We finished that up. And one of the neat things we learned in chapter 23 is that Paul has some family in Jerusalem. We didn't know that. We found out that he's got a sister in Jerusalem, and not only a sister, but she has a little boy. He's got a nephew in Jerusalem. Who knew, right? And so what's so cool is God in his sovereignty and his providence places this little boy, Paul's nephew, at the exact right place at the exact right time in order to overhear this plot that's going on about Paul. They want to kill Paul. They want to get him to come from the Antonio Fortress at the temple, come to the Sanhedrin, and somewhere in that journey, a bunch of guys are going to jump Paul and kill him, going to murder him. And the little boy hears this plot. And, and incredibly, right, God uses this little child, and so the child goes to Paul, tells Paul, Paul tells the centurion, centurion tells the uh, Roman tribune, and the tribune does something unheard of, really. He decides to leave in the middle of the night with nearly 500 Roman soldiers to protect Paul, but even deeper than that, to protect the gospel of Jesus going forward, right? Beautiful, amazing what God does when we're on mission for him. We talked about the fact that when God is for us, what? Who could be against us? For real. If you're on mission with Jesus, who can be against you? Right? We're, we're immortal until God is finished with the work he has for us. And so that, that was just a, a, an awesome time. Today we're going to get into chapter 24, and we're going to actually get to see this uh, trial case play out uh, between Paul and the chief of priests. Right? His name is Ananias. We're not, we don't hear a lot about Ananias in the story today, but trust me, he's the one behind this court case and moving forward with any accusations against Paul. So if you have your Bible, turn over to chapter 24 in the book of Acts. We're going to talk about the first nine verses for a moment. You there? Here we go. Acts 24.1 says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. 
And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your oversight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so let's pray this morning, ask God to open our hearts as we get back into this story. Father, how kind and wonderful you are. God, we love you. Thank you for your new mercies today. Thank you, thank you for this beautiful day to celebrate our moms, our wives who've given us children. Thank you for struggles even trying to become a mom for many. You're good in all that you do in all your ways. We trust you. We love you. We thank you, God, for your word this morning. We pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us to all truth. And may you increase in this place. And I decrease, Father God, that you would show us more of yourself. We would love you more, know you more as a result of being in your house with your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Three things I want to show you from our text this morning. We're going to go all the way down about, I think, verse 23. We're going to take it kind of in sections. Three things I want us to see. We're going to see that there's some accusations against Paul. There's uh, some, some charges against Paul. They're, they're not happy with Paul. Um, most of those are, are lies, <laughs> right? But Paul's going to give his defense. That's the second thing I want you to see is Paul's going to stand up for himself. And he's going to give a brilliant defense, even though he's facing uh, an expert trial lawyer, if you will, in Tertullus. And then at the end of our text today, we're going to just see where does that leave Paul's situation in life. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through the text. I want to kind of unpack some of the text for us. And then at the end, I'm going to come back and say, what does this mean to us? So Paul has been held captive in uh, Jerusalem and now Caesarea for like nine or ten days. That's, at this point, he's been held captive for the majority of the time that he's been back in the, in the region. The last five days, he's been held at Herod's palace. It's called the Praetorium in Caesarea. And he's held there until the accusers show up. Now, it took him a day and a half or so to get there, but it's taken his accusers five days. Right? They had to get the, their facts straight, so to speak. They had to make sure that the Tertullus was ready to bring this case against a man who was innocent. And uh, so they had to get their ducks in order, if you will. I want you to notice something about the people who've come to, uh, to Caesarea. These are the same little group of people. This is Ananias. This is uh, some of the elders. Do you notice that group of people? It's the same exact group of people who were plotting to kill Paul. It's the same people. They, they were working with these, these murderers to jump Paul. And now they've just taken their plot to kill him to the courtroom. It's the same group of people, smaller group of people, not the entire group, because some of the Pharisees seemed like they were going to support Paul because of the resurrection belief. So, so they didn't share with everybody that, hey, we're going to Caesarea. Just the ones who really want to get Paul are there. So it's the same group. Uh, so now that the accusers are finally there, it's taken them five days to get there, the governor, Felix, is going to be able to hear the case. Now, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but 
Governor Felix is the guy who took Pontius Pilate's place. Does that name ring a bell? Pontius Pilate is the guy who was governor over Judea when Jesus was crucified. So when his time ended, Felix took his place, right? Felix lives in Herod's palace here in Caesarea, and he's now going to be the judge over this case. So you got this expert trial lawyer, Tertullus. Uh, he's got a really interesting name. It's, he's a Hellenistic Jew, which means um, he knows a lot about Rome, could even be from that area, but he's, but he's a Jew. Uh, You've got him speaking against Paul on behalf of Ananias and his crew. Um, but one of the things that just drives me crazy about Tertullus is how sickening the flattery is. Did you notice that when we were reading that? It's like, well, I can't even hardly get it out of my mouth to read it. It's gross. Let me just, let me, you didn't, you missed it, I think. Since, uh, since through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent, Felix, reforms are being made in this nation in every way and everywhere. <coughs> Gross. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Right? It's like, oh my goodness. Syrupy, sweet, sickening flattery, kissing up to Felix. Why? Because he wants to have some sort of favor against Paul. Whatever he's got to say, whatever he's got to do to win favor, who does that sound like? Does it sound like politicians to you? It does to me. I don't care what side of the aisle they come from. This sounds like politicians to me. Let's say what we have to say here so that we can get you to do this here. It's the same exact thing with Felix. So they're going to bring four accusations against Paul. Let's look at that for just a minute. Number one, they say this man, Paul, is a plague against Israel. What's a plague? It's a disease, right? Ironically, uh, God brought plagues against Egypt, and they were, they were horrible. And so Tertullus says, this man is a plague. He's a cancer to our nation. It's a bad, bad thing. We don't need him here. He says, he stirs up riots all over the world. Did Paul ever stir up a riot? Even one time? However, the people who opposed the gospel, they're the ones that stirred up the riots. They're the ones that wanted to fight. They're the ones that wanted to, to stand up and kick Paul and his team out of wherever they were traveling. And so news of this uh, uprising against Paul follows now Paul, like he's the one who's doing it. He never did it, however. Uh, it says he's the ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. Now, a couple of things here. This is the only place in the New Testament that the body of Christ is called Nazarenes. It's the only place. The reason is because uh, Nazareth was looked down upon. To say you're a Nazarene is, is an insult to you. It's a condescending phrase. You might remember uh, when Jesus was picking his disciples, right? Philip comes to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, and he says, we found him. We found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? Remember that? Are you serious? Which I love that Jesus uh, chooses Nazareth to be his home base. He's always looking out for the underdog in that way, I think. And so they're going, oh, really? Ma Messiah? Nazareth? That doesn't make sense. But that's what he chose to do. So the Nazarenes were sort of, it was sort of a dig at at people. It was a prejudice. It was a, a condescending thing. 
Then he says that Paul was the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So a sect is a group of people who have left traditional uh, Judaism to be heretics, in essence. They've left the traditional faith of the Jews to, to kind of go off on their own way. So this, this uh, Tertullus is saying, he doesn't even follow the Jewish way. He's, he's the leader of his own sect. He's the ringleader of this sect, of this condescending phrase of the Nazarenes, right? So at every turn, it's sort of a dig against Paul and the body of Christ. And then lastly, he says, he profaned the temple. You might remember Paul uh, comes back into Jerusalem just a few days earlier, 12 days earlier. He's there, he meets with James, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he's brought these, these uh, tithes and offerings. We'll talk about that in a minute. But James says, you know, uh, why don't you complete your vow? Some of you may remember that, that Paul had taken a vow in Centria. He cut his hair. To complete that vow, you have to do it in the temple. So Paul here needs to complete his vow. But, but James says, also, take these other guys who are working through a vow of their own and pay for their dues. Right? So that's the reason Paul's in the temple, to worship, to follow the law. He's not breaking the law. He's following the law. And so he's in the temple. He's, he's come to pay dues for these men. He's worshiping quietly. He, uh, he didn't profane the temple. What they thought was that maybe Paul had brought in Trophimus, um, who's a Gentile, and it would be against the Jewish law to bring in a Gentile into the temple. But he didn't do that. He didn't profane the temple because Paul didn't want to break the law of God. He was keeping it. I think it's interesting also that, that Tertullus says, we seized him. Notice how Tertullus didn't say, we were going to hang him. Did you see, he missed that part. Lysias as well as Tertullus both have a way of forgetting certain aspects of the historical record, right, that make them look bad. So they were going to hang Paul, but they didn't. Instead, they just say, we seized him. Right, thanks, Tertullus. So the second thing I want you to see is Paul's defense. He was, had all these accusations against him. And now he's got his defense. He's going to stand up for himself in uh, this area. Look with me, Acts 24, 10 through 21. Let's listen to this beautiful defense of Paul. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to, to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and the prophets, written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they, they ought to be here before you and, and make an accusation so they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood up before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now the first thing I see in that text of scripture is how uh, little energy Felix is giving to this trial. Do you see that? 
says, and then Felix nodded. Just, you just get this feeling, Felix is like, you know, whatever, right? He doesn't care. He doesn't care about Paul. He doesn't care about the Jews. He's just, he's just doing his job. He doesn't even say a word. He just nods at Paul like, all right, your turn, right? But he can't even make a sentence. So there's no energy for this entire case. And Paul speaks up. He acknowledges Felix. Uh, he says, you've been the governor for many years. But do you notice his opening statement is a lot different than Tertullus? Tertullus? He doesn't have this syrupy, sweet lies. That, that's not what happened because, you know, what's funny with uh, Tertullus, he says to Felix, you, you've brought peace to our land. Well, that's, that's not true. Tertullus historically was known for fighting against the Jews, against the Samaritan. He was just constantly uprising after uprising. And Tertullus says, thanks for bringing peace. <laughs> He'll say anything. Well, Paul doesn't do that syrupy, sweet, flowery, fake compliments uh, to Felix the way Tertullus did. Instead, he just says, you've been a judge over our country for many years, and cheerfully, I'm going to bring my case, right? So he's cordial, but not uh, inauthentic in his opening statements. And then Paul lays out this case with incredible clarity. John Stott puts it this way. He says, his defense before his judges was to present himself as a loyal citizen of Rome and a loyal son of Israel. See, Paul believed that he could be a believer in Jesus and be faithful to the law. Faithful to the way he was, was brought up and, and believed the law. Believed the law and the prophets that Messiah was coming. And guess what? He's come. And his name is Jesus. And he could be a loyal, uh, not only a loyal son of Israel, but he could also be a, a citizen of Rome and be a Christian. So that was his uh, defense, if you will. Paul says, I've only been in Jerusalem and Caesarea for about 12 days. In other words, he mentions this to say, do you think I've had time to, to gather an uprising against Rome? Right? Does that make sense to you? Paul, in, his, in the words that he doesn't say, is, is, is amazing. It's brilliant. I've only been here 12 days. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a plague, right? I'm a cancer to our country. I've been here 12 days. What are you talking about? I wasn't causing any trouble. I wasn't disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring anyone up. The Jews can prove nothing against me, but I do confess this. I love that he stands up for the gospel, and he stands up in this moment for the church of Jesus. He says, I'm a part of the way. This is the group of people, the group of people they call the sect. The people they say are these heretical Jews, and we're not. They're believers in Jesus. But then he says, we believe the same thing you do. It's not that we're believing something extra. It's not like we're bringing something else into to our faith. We believe all of the law and the prophets. We believe, like many of these do, in the hope of the resurrection. And because I believe these things, this is a main point I want you to hear today. Because I believe these things, I have a clear conscience before God and before man. Right? In other words, because of what I believe, it affects who I am and how I live. Paul here is saying, listen, I'm a man of character. I'm clean in my heart and my mind before God and before people. He says, on top of that, I actually brought money into the country. Tell me how I'm a plague 
and how I, uh, I stir up fights and riots, and yet I'm bringing money into our country. Do you remember why Paul spent so long going around the Aegean Sea? And yes, he was establishing the churches that he had developed and planted, but what else was he doing? You remember? He was taking up a what? An offering, a collection. Because believers and, and people in, in uh, Judea had gone through a terrible famine. They were starving. They were hungry. They were poor. So Paul used the, the riches of these Gentile Christians to give an offering to take back to Jerusalem. That's what he did. And so Paul here, speaking of that, I actually brought money back into Jerusalem, back into Judea. I brought money in. I'm not trying to take something from you. He even says the phrase, my country, right? In other words, there's still ownership there. There's still pride in the fact that he's, uh, he's, he's he lived there for a while and he's been this sort of a, a patriot. So he's not only brought money into Judea, but he's brought what he calls alms, but he's also brought an offering from the temple. Remember when James says, take these guys to the temple, pay their, their dues, he's going to now bring an offering to the temple. He says, so not only did I bring money to the country to help people who were struggling, but I brought money into the temple, the very place that they said I was profaning. Doesn't make sense. And Paul gives this beautiful defense. He says, while I was in the temple, they found me purified, which is an interesting statement. What he's trying to say is, they found me following the law. They found me obeying this vow, being purified, washing myself the way I'm supposed to wash myself according to the law, and being quiet. I wasn't arguing. I wasn't making a fuss. I wasn't around a crowd. They found me following the law without any crowd or disturbance. Then he says it was the Jews from Asia, probably from uh, Ephesus. You might remember in, uh, in Acts, Paul's in, in uh, Ephesus. He stays there longer than anywhere else in the, in the synagogue. Three months he's in the synagogue, which means two things. He had three months to develop disciples deeper into Jesus and to make enemies that are hated him more and more, right? So it's on both sides. He's got those disciples that he's, he's leading to Jesus and enemies that want to kill him. Some of those enemies are the ones that saw Paul, most likely, in the temple. And so what's interesting is Paul mentions these guys, and even in the text, if you look at it closely, Paul doesn't finish his sentence. It's, it's almost, you can just see it playing out in your mind. Paul's sitting there and he goes, wait, where are the guys who accused me from the temple? And Paul uses this beautiful knowledge of Roman law. See, there's a law in, in Rome that says, if someone accuses you in a court, they have to be present to bring that accusation. If they're not present for that accusation, they can be hunted down and brought back and charged with the very same thing. So this amazing legal move by Paul to go, hey, uh, where are the guys that accused me of this whole thing? They're not here. In other words, he's reminding Felix, remember this Roman law. They're not here. I ought to be let go. Or you ought to go get them and try them. He forgets even to finish his sentence in that moment because he realizes what's going on. He says, these guys have no case against me. Of course, the only thing I did is cry out before the council. I cried out that I was on, I was, uh, I was on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. Right? Of course, that was his message of hope. But him saying that phrase 
he says is the reason that they got into the big fight that they did and began to hate Paul even more. I want to uh, go to our third uh, point this morning. So we've had Paul's accusations, Paul's defense, and now we've got Paul's situation. Acts 24, 22, and 23. Our last two verses says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So a couple of things in this, in this little couple of verses. Felix knows a lot about the way. I mean, one reason could be that, you know, obviously everybody in the area has heard about this man named Jesus. The guy that got up out of the grave, that guy. The guy that, that set ablaze this group of people called the Church of Jesus, called the Way, that literally at this point there are probably over 100, 120,000 believers around Judea. I mean, it, it, they're taking over in a sense, but not in a military way, in a loving way. He's probably familiar with the fact that, that yes, they're all around and I'm seeing, I've seen people change and I see the good that they're doing for those in need. So he's got a mind about uh, who these people are might be. Uh, some theologians think it, it has to do with his wife. His wife has the greatest name I've ever heard, Drusilla. Isn't that good? Next week we'll learn a little bit about her, but she's a Jew, and some theologians think, well, she must, she must have told Felix about uh, Christians and what, what they're about. We'll learn a little bit more about that next week. So Luke tells us at the end of the, these last two verses that Felix puts them off. Who's he talking about? He puts Paul off and he puts the Jews off. Felix literally in his power just pushes pause on the case. He just stops it. He's heard both sides. Then he says, you know, I think I'll wait to hear from Lysias when he comes back and then I'll, I'll decide your case. Here's the thing that, that makes that a little suspect, friends. He had already heard from Lysias. Do you remember? Claudius Lysias wrote a letter to Felix. And in that letter it said, I see no wrongdoing in this man. I see nothing especially uh, worthy of death in Paul. Lysias had already said, he's, he's not guilty, he's innocent. So Lysias had already spoken and yet we begin to see the character of Felix play out. And we're going to see more of it next week. He's not a good person. He hasn't been a good leader. In fact, we begin to see that uh, the whole reason he pushes pause is so he can ride the fence and see who's going to pay him first. Who's going to pay me first? I'm going to push pause until I have reason to go one way or another. Right? He's a, he's a corrupt politician. And we learn about that next week. So then Felix says to the centurion, take him back to the prison, but give him some liberty. Give him some freedom for where his friends can come care for his needs. And uh, I won't tell you how long Paul is there, but it's quite a while. So what does this mean for us today as I close? See, the thing is, when you preach or teach through these narrative types of texts, I love narrative. It's one of the reasons I love Acts, because it's a beautiful story. You see God working. You see God doing amazing things. You see God moving through people in this story that he's writing. But sometimes it's hard to go, okay, now what am I supposed to do as a Christian in this? you got to look a little deeper sometimes in the narrative, and that's what I want us to do. We've got seven quick points, and then we're going to be done. So first thing I want you to see is this. When you believe in Jesus, when you follow Christ, 
not everybody's going to be happy with you. <laughs> Some people are going to be kind of like, eh, whatever, like Felix. Just a nod. Okay, great. Some people are going to hate you so much they want to kill you. When we stand for the gospel of Jesus, when it's truly a part of our lives, we're, we're going to begin to see these different attitudes of people about us. It shouldn't change how we live. It shouldn't change uh, what the message and mission is that we have from Jesus to make him known. But just beware and be, be aware that some people are going to think what you believe in is a plague. Second thing is this. Tertullus says that Paul is this man who is guilty of stirring up riots all over the world with Jews, which we know isn't true. But when I read that, it, it reminded me of a phrase from back in Acts 17. Paul is on his missionary journey. He's going through Thessalonica. Uh, they, the Jews begin to come and look for Paul. They can't find him. So they go to the house of a, of a brother, a friend of Paul's named Jason, and they grab Jason. And what they say is that Paul and this crew of people are turning the world, what? Upside down. I couldn't help but think about this uh, association of well, there's riots all over the world, and yet what was said in, in Thessalonica was these guys are turning the world upside down. Listen, here's the thing we need to hear as believers in Jesus this morning about that. The world needs to be turned upside down. It's a mess. It's a mess. We need to be different than the world. We need to live in such a way that we're turning it upside down, turning it upside right, because it's a mess. And if we live in such a way, we trust the Lord in such a way, he will do that work in and through and around us because the gospel changes everything. When the gospel truly changes you, you can never be the same. When it begins to change you, it can begin to change your family your spending, your, your priorities, your future, your plans all of a sudden don't matter as much as God's plans for you. If our lives, speech, convictions somehow don't draw some form of persecution, the question I have for us this morning is, are we really being a witness? Are we truly making a stand for Christ if not that we're going to look for attention, not that we're trying to, to stir something up, like the, like the uh, accusation against Paul, that's not what he did, but his life and his message brought tension. And when that tension came to a boiling point, things happened, and the world began to change. My, my thing I wanna say to you this morning about this is, we can't just go about our lives in some way where the gospel is unnoticeable to everyone around us. If they know you, they ought to know about the gospel. If they know who you are, what's important to you, they ought to know that the gospel is important to you. It ought to be who you are. And when you live this way, where hopefully people don't look at you and go, I don't know if he, I don't know if he goes to church, I don't know if he's a Christian, I don't know what, what he, I don't, then something's wrong, right? Something, something is not happening the way God wants it to happen in your life. I'm so grateful for my friend Chad who was here last week. He played that little video, that awesome little video about uh, growing gardens instead of adding to the dumpster fire. This is who we need to be. Let's, let's leave the dumpster fire alone and let's begin to build 
gardens. Make gardens. Let's begin to do good. Let's begin to do the work of Jesus to where people are going, something different about this guy. And it's unbelievably refreshing from what I was doing over here. Friends, the thing that we need to know about this is that Christianity is not a secret faith. To be a Christian isn't to be uh, secretive as you slip away to church and you worship for a little while and go home to the rest of your life. And I'm talking about what I have been. This is who I was in this very room as a teenager, as a college student in some ways. I thought, I thought I could keep secret one life and live another before people that seemed okay. It was fake. It was inauthentic. It was wrong. God is calling us to one way, one truth, an authentic life in Jesus as his disciple, not to be a secret. It says it this way in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is not a secret faith that we live. When we truly follow Jesus, people should know it. In fact, we ought to be shining like a city on a hill. You can see it from miles away. That's, that's, there's life up there. Something's going on over there. Light is shining from that place, and that ought to be your life. When we follow Christ. The third thing is this. The accusation against Paul wasn't about what he did. It was about who he was. Who are you? How are you following Christ? See, these Jewish leaders would rather scheme and plot to literally commit murder and and, uh, several sins in the process than seriously look inward at the sinfulness of their own souls and surrender to Jesus. This is what I'm saying. Some of us would rather live a lofty life religiously or in some secretive way than truly take a good look at our hearts. I love the entrance. There's the entrance of the door at Bethlehem. Uh, You know, the story tells us Jesus was born in Bethlehem and and shortly after that, uh, the church came in and put a church right over supposedly that exact spot where he was born. Who knows if it actually is or not, but maybe. But one of the things that's interesting about the archaeology of that building is there's a little tiny door. <laughs> I'm 6'3", and small doors don't go, they're, they're kind of difficult for me, right? That's the purpose. It's not because people in Bethlehem were all little people, right? They just walked right in, No. They put a small door so that you had to humble yourself to get in to the house of God. I love that. It says if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got a people, we've got to be a people who who are not lofty and, and, and religious and think we're better than everybody else. We have to come in humility. Fourth thing is this, Paul talked about believing the same things the accusers did. Uh... As I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but think about the fact that there will be people in our lives, many people at times in our lives, who say they believe the same things you believe, but their lives don't look like your lives. Their preferences aren't your preferences. Their convictions aren't your convictions. But wait a minute. We believe the same things. 
Paul says, I believe the same things they believe. I believe the law and the prophets. I, I believe the resurrection. And yet you have me on trial because I'm living out what I believe. I'm not just saying what I believe. You see the difference? Saying that you just believe in something doesn't really mean very much. The question we have to answer for ourselves this morning is, how does what we believe really change who we are? How does what we believe really motivate us to live and love and share Jesus? Friends, if all you have is a list of rules, if all you have is a belief system and no proof in your life, of a loving relationship, obedient to Jesus, you're fooling yourself. James 2 says, even the demons believe and shudder. James 2 is, is saying, listen, the demons believe. So for you just to say, I believe, well, great, you're on par with the demons. Way to go. To say that you believe something is one thing. To live it out, to walk it out, Right? To, to live through the tension of our faith and, our, and what we believe. We won't do it perfectly. We sin, we fall, we make mistakes. But by God's grace, we are on a journey to honor him and love him with our lives. If you're not on that journey, if you're living in habitual sin, and it's always just this, eh, I'll, I'll change at some point. Friend, i got to ask you to take a good look at your heart. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Because people who know Jesus want to serve him. They want to love him. They, they want to be his. They see the change that he's made in them, and they don't ever want to go back to who they were. Your belief can't just be what you say. It's got to be literally how you lead your life. Your belief in Jesus has to lead you to right behavior in Jesus, or your faith isn't worth very much. Number five. Paul finds ways, I think this is awesome, Paul finds ways always to insert the gospel of Jesus in these trials. Paul's going to have five trials. In every single one, he will insert the gospel of Jesus. In every one. Remember I said this a couple of weeks ago, you know, Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, he said, I'm, I'm crucified with Christ, I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. Remember that? What Paul is saying here is that I'm not my own. I don't live for my own dreams, my own plans, my own desires. I am in Christ. His desires are more important than my desires. His plan is more important than my plan. Listen, for 17 years, I worked as hard as I could to become a Christian artist. With the heart, and I believe the direction from the Lord to go in that direction. I believe that was his plan for me to, to chase that and to be in that um, industry. And with all my heart, I went after that. But then God had a different plan for me. And it was confusing because I was like, but I thought we were going this way. And God was saying, I want, I want you to do this. Because this had become my plan and my dream and not just God's direction anymore. And so I had to say, Lord, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, yet Christ lives through me. It's not what I want. It's not what I dream. It's not what I plan. This voice is yours, whether you want me to sing or preach, I don't care. I'm crucified with Christ. Some of you need to look at your dreams and your hopes and your plans and your vision and go, Lord, how, do, how, do, how does my being a disciple play into this? 
Because Jesus said, to be my disciple, you've got to lay down your life. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. It's not about you anymore, pal. It's about Jesus. Love how Paul inserted these gospel conversations in all of these trials and all these places. Before the temple, when, when they seized him and wanted to hang him, he gets up on, on the Antonio Fortress and he preaches to both Rome, Roman soldiers and to the Jews the gospel of Jesus. Remember? He tells his story. He tells about Jesus sending him on mission. He gets before the council and he begins to talk about resurrection. Of course, they get into a big fight. <laughs> he stands now before Felix and he inserts the fact that I confess that I'm a part of the way and I believe in the resurrection and I, I believe in, in the law and the prophets. These are the things I confess to. He's inserting these gospel truths into every conversation. But what's so interesting to me is when he says something about having a clear conscience. He says basically, because I believe in these things, because this is my faith, I have a clear conscience between God and man. This is the question I think you ought to ask, and I ought to ask this morning. Am I truly obedient to this God I say I believe in. Belief isn't just some mental construct where you go, huh, okay, I got it, believe. Belief is actually defined in the walking out of that belief. Am I obedient to this God that I say I believe? Does this faith I say I believe in truly affect how I live among other people? Do I have a clear conscience before God in how I'm living and before people in how I live with them? I think it's interesting, Paul, this was going to be his message before the council. If you look over in Acts 23, verse 1, <laughs> Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, he says, Luke says to us, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul's trying to say the working out of our faith is not just saying you have faith, it's actually living faith. It's actually being men and women of faith. This conscience thing, this, this idea of conviction. Do you know what I, what I, what I mean when I say conviction? <laughs> if you do, you do. Because there are times where the Holy Spirit just starts, my heart just starts beating like crazy and I, I have to confess, I have to repent, I have to go to a brother, I have to go to a sister, I have to have a conversation because I don't have a clear conscience about how I am with God or how I am with people. But when you begin to follow Christ, you want to be able to live in such a way that your conscience is clear before the Lord and before people. We're supposed to love people the way Jesus loved people. We even see at that council where Paul, he shoots back kind of a, a statement back to the chief priest. And somebody says, you don't talk that way to the chief priest. And what does Paul do? I'm sorry, brothers, I didn't, I didn't know he was the chief priest. He owned his mistake He's clear now, again, before people. He proves what he's saying here. Jesus talks about laying down your offering if there's something between you and a brother. This idea that when you come to worship, if, if a brother has something against you, if you have something against someone, that you would, you would forego worship to make it right with men. Oh, I wish we would get this better in the church. I wish we would walk through the tension of difficulty in the church so that we could get to each other's hearts. Not some narrative I've placed on you or you've placed on me, the truth. 
I weep over people we've lost who weren't willing to walk deeper into conversation and authenticity. Do we have a clear conscience of conviction among brothers? Paul says this in Romans 13. He says, uh, be at peace with all men as far as it is up to you. As far as you can take this as it's up to you. You're not in control of them, but if you can do your best with yourself to be at peace with everyone, do all that you can to be at peace. Number six. Let me just ask this question real quick, and we're going to move to number seven and finish up. If you were on trial today, and I've asked this before, but it's more appropriate with Paul being on trial, I think. If you're on trial today, and they're trying to prove, whoever's against you, trying to prove that you're a Christian, that you love Jesus, that you want to make him known, would there be enough evidence in your life to prove it so? They went into your home. They went on your phone. They got into your computer. They questioned your friends. Would they go, oh my gosh, there's no question. This guy loves Jesus. Guilty. Or would they go, didn't really find anything. Number seven, are we willing to be inconvenienced by the gospel? We're going to see a lot of this next week when we see the story play out a little bit more. But Paul, an understatement is to say that he is inconvenienced by his stance for the truth. See, we, we've all got our plans, don't we? Some of you are thinking about dinner right now. You got lunch, you got, you got your restaurant, and you're even thinking about the, the thing on the menu that you're about to have. Or what's cooking at home, I don't know. I, I may be one of those people, I don't know. We have our plans, don't we? We got what we want to do, where we want to go, who we want to be. But if we are crucified with Christ, we've got to let that be the thing that drives our lives. We've got to let that be the thing that is most important to us. You will be held up. You will be persecuted. Jesus said it was going to happen. When we live with missional awareness, this desire to make Jesus known and to live for him, it's going to come with blessings, unbelievable blessings, and difficult circumstances. Jesus promised it, Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul faced this kind of persecution. If you know Jesus, he tells us we will too. You might lose a job. You might not get a raise. There's, there's things that are going to happen Sometimes just because of the fact that you follow Christ and you want to make it known. I close with this. When you begin to live like the gospel is everything to you, the gospel is true, it'll turn your world upside down and the people around you. But you can't just say that you believe it. you got to live it. you got to do it. you got to allow it to work its change in you. And then lastly this morning I would just say, who are some missional people, people that you can look at with a desire to reach for Christ, desire to have conversations. Can you insert some of these things about the gospel, about the resurrection of Jesus, about your hope, about the change in your own life? Insert these things in your conversations. And maybe by his grace, he'll lead to a gospel, not just conversation, but
to transformation. That's our prayer, and that's our hope, right? Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for today. God, I pray with all my heart, if there's any believer in this place, even watching online, that doesn't have a clear conscience with you, they know there's conviction, they know there's shame, they know there's guilt. Lord, I pray that you would lead them to your loving arms, your grace-giving presence, that they might find hope and life, forgiveness and joy. Father, if there's a guilty conscience, man to man, woman to woman, believer to believer, whatever the case may be, if there's some conversations that need to happen, and maybe it's between a child and a mom. Maybe there's some brokenness in a, in a relationship with your mom. Lord, I pray that they would be faithful just to say, I'm sorry, and how can we work through this? Lord, just help us to have a faith that is not just grounded and rooted in what we say, but in how we live. Let it transform us, change this world for your glory. Father, we love you. We give you this time. We pray that you'd help us to enter a time of uh, not rushing out of here, but a time of uh, dedication of our hearts to you, where we focus on what you want to speak to us now and how we'll respond to it through worship. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?